the Jewish people in the land of Israel, we have three concentric circles of tensions and conflicts. One is with the Arab minority in Israel, which is primarily Muslim. The other is with the Palestinians living in Yehuda Shamron, And the third is Israel being part of the Middle East. In all of these three circles, the primary identity of the other is Islamic. To heal the relations with our Muslim brothers and sisters is a way also to heal the conflicts in our area. So this has existential significance. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is the Orthodox Conundrum. This is the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. Just over a month ago, I released an episode of this podcast entitled Confrontation 2022, Jewish-Christian Dialogue and Its Questions, with my close friend, Rabbi Pesach Wolicki. We spoke about why he believes that his work has value, what kind of pushback he's received, whether he's providing an opening for missionary activity, how he justifies speaking in churches, and more. Today's episode is, in some ways, a follow-up to that episode. Rabbi Dr. Yaakov Nagain is one of the leading advocates of Jewish-Muslim dialogue, a discipline which offers great opportunities, at the same time that it creates new questions and serious challenges. In this conversation, I asked him about how he talks to Muslims about Israel, whether he avoids the question of sovereignty over the Holy Land, Jerusalem, and the Temple Mount altogether, or whether he's willing to confront it with them head-on, if this dialogue is truly mutual, to what degree large Islamic terrorist organizations like ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and Hezbollah are representative of the wider Muslim population, how he answers Muslim misconceptions about Jews, what he hopes to achieve, and much more. Given the political reality in which Israel finds itself, the success of Rabbi Nagain's work is potentially of vital importance for the future of the entire Middle East. Before we begin the conversation, let me remind you to share this podcast, rate the Orthodox Conundrum, and write a review on Apple Podcasts, and let us know what you think on the Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. Check out jewishcoffeehouse.com for the Orthodox Conundrum and other great podcasts, and remember to subscribe to them on your favorite podcast provider. Thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers who have access to bonus Jewish Coffeehouse podcasts, merch, and more. You should join our Patreon team too. The link is in the description of this podcast. Finally, podcasting gets more popular every day, and that means that there are two important pieces of information you should have. First, if you don't have a podcast, you're missing out on the best new way of reaching hundreds and thousands of engaged listeners. And second, if you want to have a podcast, you need to make sure that it's well-produced so that you can be noticed among all the other podcasting options out there. So if you have opinions that you want to share with a large group of people, or a growing business that's looking for a great new marketing tool, or an organization that's looking to reach hundreds or thousands of captivated listeners, you should have a podcast and one that is of the highest quality, and we can help you make that happen. Contact me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jchpodcasts.com to learn how we can help you make a high-quality, entertaining, and above all, effective podcast. Rabbi Dr. Yaakov Meir Nagain is an Israeli rabbi and author. Rabbi Nagain is a leader in interfaith peace initiatives between Judaism and Islam and in encounters between Judaism and Eastern religions. He is the director of the Blickley Institute for Interfaith Dialogue and the Beit Midrash for Judaism and Humanity. Rabbi Nagain also teaches at Yeshivat Otniel and has written extensively about Jewish philosophy and Talmud. 
Rabbi Yaakov Nagain, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Thank you, Scott, for hosting me. I want to ask you, Yaakov, how you first got involved in Jewish-Muslim dialogue. It doesn't seem like the typical work that one would expect when going to rabbinical school. Well, part of the confession is that somehow I just have a tendency to really love people, and afterwards I make it into an ideology and theology. But as many things in life, it also it grows on you. Um, it's one encounter leads to the next. And especially where I live, um, I live uh, in the, the hills near, near Hebron. Uh, learning how to live together with our neighbors does have an existential component that more and more we, people realize that we have to take into account. And as the great Rabbi Menachem Fruman once put it, if religion is part of the problem in our conflicts, it will have to be part of the solution. I hear that. How did you first decide that this was the path for you? It's one thing to say, I want to get along with my neighbors. It's another thing to make it into your life's work. Again, it's, it, it's step by step. and But sometimes I feel there's a greater force pushing things ahead, that it's often the, the field is calling out to me rather than the opposite. Um, I mean, just, just recently, there was a, a major conference in Indonesia as part of the G20, and somehow they reached out to me. Throughout the world, it's, it finds people reaching out to me rather than the other words. So, so I don't, so somehow it's, the world is opening up and I just try to follow a calling. I'm going to get back to that conference in Indonesia. That sounds very interesting. We'll definitely talk about that. But beforehand, I think there's some preliminaries I'd like to understand first. Can you, Yaakov, define what Jewish-Muslim dialogue is for you and what goals do you really have in doing so? Okay, so this is a, this could take a long time because I think it's a multi-dimensional significance. First of all, it's part of the vision for the Jewish people. My reading of the Torah is that the Torah begins not with the story of the Jewish people, but the story of our common humanity, our common ancestor, and all created in the image of God. And I see the shoot, the Bechira of the Avot, Avram, Yisrael, and Yaakov are not to abandon the world, but to bring blessing to the world. And that being the case, in our global era, the question, what is the role of the Jewish people in the great store of humanity? I see this as a religious imperative. And actually, I see this as part of my Zionism. Um, I made Aliyah. And the great insight of religious Zionism is to say that the, the vision that the prophets have for the future is a vision that we are responsible to be partners with God to realize this vision. Part of the vision was the return to Zion. Part of the vision is return to Yerushalayim, Harabayat, the Temple Mount. But these things, we are grateful to God, but realize we, the Jewish people, had to be active participants in this great drama. And I feel the same is true for other dimensions of the vision of the future for the Jewish people. And a major aspect of that vision that goes throughout the books of the, of the prophets is religious partnership calling together in the name of God with humanity. And since Judaism does not believe everyone has to be Jewish, um, we have to find the ways and the paths to find a partnership 
calling together the name of God and getting to that fulfillment of the of the of the verse in Zechariah that says, In the future, God will be one and his name will be one. And Rashi, Rashi writes that will take place only when the Amim, the nations, join with the Jewish people in calling the name of God. So first, on a first level, this is a religious imperative. But as I mentioned earlier, it's also a existential, physical necessity. Israel, the Jewish people in the land of Israel, we have three concentric circles of tensions and conflicts. One is with the Arab minority in Israel, which is primarily Muslim. The other is with the Palestinians living in Yehuda Shamron. And the third is Israel being part of the Middle East. In all of these three circles, the primary identity of the other is Islamic. To heal the relations with our Muslim brothers and sisters is a way also to heal the conflicts in our area. So this has is existential significance. That obviously is so important, but I wanna ask you about something you mentioned. It wasn't in passing, but you mentioned it in a different context. You talked about the return to Zion, the return to the Temple Mount. Yes. It's very nice and very important, obviously, to include in that having reconciliation with our Muslim brothers and sisters. But let's talk about the Temple Mount for a moment. It's very hard to reconcile competing claims to the exact same piece of land. Obviously, that could be writ large in all of Israel, but the Temple Mount is an example, a microcosm of the whole thing, where it's extremely intense. How do you manage that sort of thing? It's one thing to say we have to be reconciled, but there are certain claims that cannot be reconciled. So first of all, it's about taking steps in the right directions. I've even written articles on a what I would see as a much improved status quo for the Temple Mount. But maybe first as a background, but what is so moving, if we could choose with the Temple Mount being something that the world is indifferent and we could do whatever we want there, or having the world obsessed with the Temple Mount, I think in the process of redemption, that second possibility would be more significant. And remembering that from all throughout, the significance of Harabayit is for all of the world. Whether it's Shlomo Melech, when he dedicates the first Beit HaMikdash, he calls out to God saying, listen to the prayers of the Nachri, of the non-Jews come from afar. I remember once sitting with a Muslim sheikh who was very moved. He says, realize that in the Quran, when it talks about the journey of Muhammad to Al-Aqsa, Mizgad Al-Aqsa means the far away mosque. So there's a intertextual dialogue between Shlomo calling to the Nachri Mirachok and the faraway Nachri and the Quran talking about going to the faraway house of prayer. In fact, in Islamic tradition, there are five pillars. One of the five pillars is prayer. And in Muslim tradition, the commandment of prayer was given during that journey to the Temple Mount Al-Aqsa. So ultimately, it should be a place of connection. It should be, as Ishayo says, Beit Kolamim, a house of prayer for all people. And as, for example, my dear friend, soul brother, and former neighbor, Rabbi Yehuda Glick, who's one of the, one of the great proponents of 
Jewish prayer on, on the Temple Mount and Harabayit, he points out that even the Al-Aqsa Mosque itself is built on the extension of Harabayit by King Herod, which is not considered to be Harabayit in Jewish halacha. Um, there are other issues of the Kipata Sela, the, the Dome of the Rock. But anyway, without many conditions which are connected to a Messianic age, we're not fully cut out for that. But I will mention, I personally are among the rabbis who do go up on Harabayit, and I pray there also, and it feel it's it's a very powerful experience. Um, and I could continue, but I mean, this is enough for now. Okay. I want to ask you about something that you've said in terms of the reconciliation and the dialogue that happens between Muslims and Jews. Rabbi Yaakov, in your opinion, how does that dialogue really work? I'll tell you what I mean and specifically what I'm asking. Obviously, there's a lot of explaining that we have to do so that Muslims understand where we're coming from. Do you also feel that you gain and learn from your Muslim interlocutors, the people you talk to in the Muslim world? Do they enrich your own religious journey? In other words, what I'm really asking is, is this a Jewish-Muslim encounter in order to explain Judaism to Muslims, or is it somewhat mutual? says, Who is wise? Who learns from all people? I think a wise nation could learn from all nations. And I feel, and I believe I can learn from others, even within Judaism. There are so many who are different than me, and I have what to learn from everybody. So I feel we have what to learn from our Muslim brothers and sisters, and I feel we have something to gain. I feel somehow globalization could create uh, an image that the world is primarily secular. We know that the PU study, which, which is a center that studies religious practice, um, claims that 84% of humanity are religious. And realizing that we're part of a very, of a great story, a global story, and the Jewish people have a very central place in that story, because so much of Islam is building on Judaism, it makes our Judaism and religiosity more significant and not less. And certainly, I think they're authentically pious people looking for the face of God with wisdom, and there's what to be learned from all, even if we don't agree on everything. Then let's talk a little bit about that dialogue and some of the problems that might arise from it. Recently, Rabbi Yaakov, I had on the same podcast, your colleague and my good friend, Rabbi Pesach Wiliki, we talked about the Jewish Christian encounter and encounter between Jews and Christians. And again, I'm not in that field, so I'm coming at it as a layman, but it seems to me there's some elements that are more difficult than perhaps a Jewish Muslim encounter and some elements that are much easier. For example, in the Christian world, there are many groups that have come to terms or at least are coming to terms with millennia of anti-Semitism that have come to terms and accept and even love the state of Israel. And a lot of that, as I see it, does not exist as much in the Muslim world. On the other hand, the Muslim history of anti-Semitism, frankly, is not nearly as bad as Christian history of anti-Semitism. I'm speaking over the course of the past couple thousand years. And in addition, there's also another element, which is that when we speak theologically, if we want to discuss the problems of idolatry and the problems of Avodah Zarah, these problems are more relevant to the Christian encounter than it is to the Muslim encounter, as I understand it. For example, in such matters as halachically, the question of entering a mosque is less contentious than the question of entering a church. Again, I'm saying this as a layperson. So I wanted to ask if you agree with what I'm saying now, and if those differences really are there, and especially the first, the problems with Muslim dialogue that I mentioned, has that been a problem for you? Okay, so we go one by one to the many points you've mentioned. 
on a theological basis, it's because of the stress of the of the oneness of God. Shema Yisrael, Echad. It's more challenging um, the Christian Jewish dialogue, and there are things that are more debated theologically. The divin the divinity of Jesus. Um, so there are many more complex issues than in Islam that focuses so much on, on the oneness of God. Um, I, I, the daughter of Ravadi Yosef would say that if he, when he was the chief rabbi of Cairo and had David Mincha and couldn't get to a, a, a shul, he would prefer to pray in a mosque and not outside. I personally heard from Rabbi Avigdar Nevinsal, one of the Gedolei Ador, for many years the chief rabbi of the old city of Yerushalayim, in his home overlooking the Temple Mount, I heard him, him telling me that his, his psak, that it's forbidden to desecrate a mosque, not because of religious pluralism, but because the one God that we pray to believe in is the same one God that they do, which is the Rambam says explicitly in Hebrew, Mamin Hashem Dofi. They believe in the unity of God with unblemished. Um, now, in terms of the anti-Semitism, I, I feel the the potential for anti-Semitism in the original works in Christianity had that potential much more than in the Islamic works, the Quran and the Hadith, which I have studied extensively. Right now, there are conflicts. Israel is in conflict with many Muslims. And so I think this is the source for um, a lot of the Islamic anti-Semitism is one Muslim iman when asked, why does why there's so much violence in the name of religion? So he said that religion is power and power corrupts. Religion in a conflict where every side uses whatever tools they can, religion is power. Religion is something to be used for the conflict. So that's why we have this explosion of anti-Semitism and conflict. But that also means why this is what's critical here. I, I have many Christian bishops that I'm, I feel close to, but I feel my energy as I focus on Islam because that's where it's needed. Because of the process that has taken place in the last half a century with Christianity, it is less an essential necessity to this, this dialogue. And that dialogue also gives us hope that things could change and they could change for the better. Well, let's talk about Israel a little bit more. Even though Israel right now is a stumbling block that's leading to some of that Muslim anti-Semitism, as you said. In other words, it's not something which is necessarily as inherent as it might be in early Christianity, but because of the current political climate, it's exacerbated. When you talk to people in the Muslim world, do you find that Israel is a stumbling block and you have to avoid it and you only discuss Judaism without really dealing with the state of Israel or with Eretz Israel, Or are you able to actually bring that into the conversation and have a meaningful dialogue about Israel as well? Um, so I try to do both. But again, the terminology and language is always important, how it's done, in what way. For example, I was just in, um, maybe we'll get to it later, when I was in Indonesia, a country that does not have diplomatic relations with Israel. And part of it is because Indonesia suffered a lot under colonialism, and they don't necessarily know so much about what's happening in Israel. So the default is say if there's a Muslim minority, which is some uh, in a conflict with a non-Muslim country, so um, 
default is taking that side. But when I was there and it went by wildfire throughout the Indonesian press, was explaining why Indonesia should join the Abraham Accords and pointing out Abraham Accords is taking its name from the common ancestor of both Judaism and Islam, saying that we have a point of connection and saying that in an era of conflict, their joining the Abraham Accords will not be choosing one side on the expense of the other, but helping promote a spirit of peace and reconciliation that will bring blessings for all. Okay, let's talk about that conference in Indonesia, because that sounds really interesting. You said that that talk went like wildfire across the Indonesian press. It's interesting they reported it. It implies that there actually is something to talk about. Can you talk about what that's like? What is it like to be the rabbi in a room full of Muslims? Perhaps there are others I don't know. But to represent Judaism, do you find that the backlash is strong against you? Is there a visceral dislike of what you have to say? Is there openness to what you have to say? What's the general feeling? And what other experiences and impressions did you get from a conference like that? Um, I left only with positive. Uh, first, let me give a little bit of the background. Um, the Washington Hill called it the most significant interfaith conference in the world. This was part of the G20. Um, G20 is the 20 largest economies of the world. And once a year, in one of the countries hosts it. This was Indonesia's turn. And their moment of inspiration was to connect to the G20, the R20 for religions, a major interfaith conference organized by, by the Nahad Latu Olama with the 100 million members in Indonesia. It's the largest Muslim group in the world and also the, the World League for Islam of Saudi Arabia. They were the hosts. Although they were 400, of the 400 attendants, there were many Christians. I was one of three Jews there, the only one from Israel. And I was stunned that at the sessions, they would begin with saying, welcome, wassalam alaikum, something in Indonesian, and then shalom. And I would always get elbowed by someone saying, that's for you. Um, in one of the sessions, one of the days was on Shabbat in, in, the, in a follow-up program. And so I thought I'd keep a, a low profile and sit in a corner. But then someone gets, one of the organizers gets up and says, I would ask for the rabbi to share with everybody what he told me in the private conversation. So people run over with microphones, but it's Shabbos. So I push them away, yell my lungs out. And then one of the Muslim leaders gets up and says, I am so moved by a rabbi who's so rooted in his tradition that he doesn't use a microphone on Shabbat, but he is so open to the other. In, in another instance, one of really one of the leading Muslim leaders in the world, I prefer not to mention his name because from a country that doesn't have diplomatic relations in Israel, um, he spoke beautifully. Afterwards, I gave him a, a copy of the Torah translated into Arabic. After giving me many big hugs, he asks, is this by any chance the Rambam's translation? Because we all love Moshe ben Maimon. I said, well, actually, it's Rav Sadia Gon, but Rav Sadia Gon also is a very significant rabbi. I told him about Rav Sadia Gon, and he, and he was quite satisfied. And there's a lack of symmetry that's important to point out. In Judaism, the Torah doesn't talk about Islam. But the, in the Quran, the most mentioned figure in the Quran is Moshe Rabbeinu, mentioned 140 times, whereas Muhammad is mentioned three times. So the fast obsession 
which could go both ways, love, hatred, but certainly obsession, Islam has with Judaism is not shared by, by Judaism because we can imagine we could live without knowing anything about Islam, but Islam has to have a relationship and thinking about Judaism. It's interesting you say that because I have heard it said, not directly, but I've read people say this in the Muslim community. I'm guessing you might have heard this as well. They say, well, we as Muslims respect all of the prophets of Judaism. Why do you Jews not respect our prophet as well? It's not really a fair argument, obviously, because it's saying that Muhammad respected Moshe. How come you as Jews can't accept Muhammad as a true prophet? Mm-hmm. So uh, that's an argument which I've heard, which obviously historically doesn't make much sense, but it seems to be to hold water from their perspective. Have you heard that argument before? Of course, I've heard it often. And I think part of the question to be set, to find a sensitive way to respond to it. I think the if we want to know the festering wound of Jewish-Muslim relations, with, of course, I fully understand and identify with the Jewish side, was that when Muhammad in Al-Medina came and presenting himself as a continuation of the story of the of the Tanakh, um, at that time in El Medina, the people that were, the groups that were revered by all were the Jewish people. We know historically people would send their children to be raised by the Jews. But when Muhammad coming in the name of the Jewish tradition, following the Jewish tradition, but not accepted by the Jewish people, this created a very explosive environment. Certainly the Jewish people, understandably, could not give the recognition that he sought. And it's understandable why that lack of acknowledgement would lead to such an explosive situation with many, much violence against Jews then and afterwards. But I think part of the way to deal with this is to say what legitimacy and respect can we give to this religious identity. There are many, this is what I do work on, and there are many levels to that. Um, One level of giving respect, certainly, which is consensus in Judaism, would be Islam is believing in the the oneness of God. Other aspects would see many positive aspects of the pillars of Islam, of, of prayer, charity, to see them also as ultimately fulfilling the seven commandments of the children of Noah. But, and to express that sensitively, and it's also possible to go beyond that. And here, I'm not, um, there's a, a whole spectrum of views relating to Islam. In general, in my recent book, co-authored by two other rabbis, which we hope to be translated to English, yeah, um, his name is one, Healing the Relations Between Judaism and World Religions. There I make the case that going from the Bible to the Talmud, medieval and and recent um, commentaries, that the vision of the future of humanity calling together the name of God consensusly is not about everybody being Jewish, but it's also not enough to say that everybody accepts that very slim and skim list of the seven mitzvot of the children of Noah. But it's about... You, the very varied humanity, building up traditions of serving God, meaning religions that incorporate within them monotheism and some of those basic elements that we identify with Mitzvot B'day Noach. So this could take another step of saying legitimacy in the religion itself. 
And then we get to another issue of what is the place of God in the development of Islam? And here too, there's a spectrum of views. One of the great medieval rabbis, Rabbi Netanel Fayomi, who the Rambam called Moreno of Rabbeinu, and according to Rav Kapach, he greatly impacted on the Moran of Uchim, says that he believes that God sends prophets to humanity. And he quotes the Quran dozens of times and clearly saw as Muhammad as a prophet, not to the Jewish people, who are eternally bound by Har Sinai and our covenant with God, but a prophet for other parts of humanity. Um, Rav Kook, in his book, Nebuchadnezzar, has a similar terminology about we have no opposition to other religions, and we believe that their founders could have had divine inspiration, a little bit less radical than his. The Rambam, or the Rambam, had a more limited approach of legitimizing other religions. It's a major topic in my book, showing that the Rambam is, not, is, a, is the exception rather than the rule. But the Rambam does see that the evolution of Christianity and Islam as being part of a divine plan for, for uh, unraveling the, the process of redemption. And Rav Yaakov Emdin, one of the giants, Gedole Ador of the 18th century, he goes beyond the Rambam, seeing the hand of God in developing of those religions, but moreover saying, what, um, saying that seeing the positive value, not only is the means in the messianic process, but a great value in themselves, appreciating the unique aspects of these religions. Okay, that's really interesting. Thank you for sharing that. I want to ask about another sticking point that might come up in your discussion with Muslims, and that is the off-sighted belief that Muslims have that Jews have falsified their scriptures, that the Torah, Tanakh, originally said something different, but we changed it to make it not like it really should be. And the Quran is bringing it back to its actual state of authenticity. That could be a real sticking point because they're saying it's not just that you're wrong. You actually lied about it historically. You changed things so that you would be blind to the truth on some level. Have you seen that? And how do you answer that? Okay. So first of all, I've seen it. I've, I answer it, but not me alone. I just I have a friend from Saudi Arabia, a very distinguished professor from Al Medina, the city of Mohammed, uh, and who wrote a whole book devoted to this topic, um, debunking the what's called in Arabic the takhrif. So I'll give you some background of it. And I had a personal story when I was in Al Azhar in Cairo. Al Azhar is the oldest university in the world, older even than Hogsworth, more than a thousand <laughs> years old. And I, was, I had a meeting with the head of the laws of Islam, the head of, the head of the school for the laws of Islam. And in it, I mentioned how offensive it is for Jews, this idea of the takhrif. And he said, well, you know, that changes could have taken place, because of course the Torah is a translation. I say, what? He goes, well, I imagine the Torah probably was given in Egyptian, because that's what the Jews spoke when they were in Egypt. I said, look, the Jewish people now live in the land of Israel. After 2,000 years of exile, we are talking Hebrew. It would be a small thing for people like us to keep our language for a relatively short period in Egypt. The Torah was given in Hebrew. A Torah that one letter is changed is invalid. The Torah today is the same Torah that Moshe got. That he had no answer to. But let me give a historical background. This is a very, the way, the extreme 
way of presenting it that it's all a falsification, this is in direct conflict with so many places in the Quran and also the Hadith, as my friend Tamir Matwali and many, many, many other scholars throughout the Islamic scholars throughout the world have pointed out. The, the Quran is quite explicit. It says in Surah Al-Ma'ida that if God wanted, he could have given one book to all, but he gave the Torah to the Jewish people and it is light and guidance. And this is how they should live. He gave the Evangel to the Christians and he gave the book, meaning the Quran, to us. And therefore, all should do based on what they received. The Quran says, tell Ahalu Kitab, the people of the book, that your God and our God is one. And we believe in what was given to you. And we believe in also what was given to us. There are so many statements, it's overwhelming. In the Hadith, there's a story in the Hadith that two Jews came to ask Muhammad a question. And he said, you are Jews, why ask me? So he called to bring a Sefer Torah. And when the Sefer Torah came, he stood up and he put the Sefer Torah on the beautiful cushion seat. And then since he couldn't read it, he called for a rabbi to read from the Torah. This is a Hadith, which is like equivalent to the Talmud. So it is quite overwhelming. Now, the original concept of the Takhrif, which the original Pasuk in the Quran, would refer to some Jews misinterpreting some parts of the Torah. But that got expanded in the 10th century, primarily someone called Ibn Khazam, who was a real anti-Semite and a debater to Rav Shmuel Anagid, that he came up with this really ridiculous claim that the Torah is a forgery by Ezra. And unfortunately, so many things which are totally in disconnect to things uh, in the sources, in the among the masses, take hold. Unfortunately, I think this is true in Judaism also. There's some negative statements that I feel were sent in certain contexts, and somehow the tafel becomes the ikar, the ikar, the tafel. Sometimes the exception becomes the rule. The rule becomes the exceptions under certain circles. So there is a struggle, but part to deal with the struggle is to have a dialogue, to have an encounter on these issues. Let me ask you about something you said at the beginning of our conversation about the ultimate goal in the time of the redemption to call together in the name of God, Jews and Muslims together, or all peoples together. So do you believe that today— I didn't, mean to, I didn't mean an exclusion of other people. Understood, understood. Do you believe that today, Rabbi Nagain, in an unredeemed world, that there is place for any sort of joint worship, or is that beyond the pale? Well, joint, yes, but, but not identical. Meaning, I think, I think we have to keep our Jews are Jewish and Muslims are Muslims. And we have our traditions, we have our prayers, and we should be, we should be devoted to our unique identities. We shouldn't confuse our identities. It's like I know that there's a Jubu identity, but Jews are somehow they're interested in Buddhism and they create something which is some sort of a mishmash, which is not about merging identities. It's about being authentically each ourselves, but part of the glory and beauty of the Rabbanoshalam of God is that they are Jews praying with our tefillah, with our prayers, and there are other, other religions also. As the, as the prophet Malachi says in Hebrew, 
ממזרח שמש עד מבואו, גדול שמי בגויים. From the rise of the sun to the setting of the sun, my name is great among the nations, and they are bringing pure sacrifices to me. Part of the beauty is also diversity. By, by the way, the motto of Indonesia is unity within diversity. So to see that there is the diversity and we, and we, should, we should treasure it, not merge it. But joint, so joint prayer would not be finding something third to say. It should be that we are praying, we are each praying our prayer, but sometimes in meetings we have, there's one of the Muslim prayers comes around the time of around Shkia times, so to be praying. Sometimes we are facing one direction, they're praying the, the other direction, but by doing it together, it has a real power. And I feel it's a real enhancement of the glory and place of God. In fact, I'll tell you, there was someone in the very far secular post-Zionist left um, um, near Bar'am. He did a documentary film about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, a very, a very pessimistic film. But he decided to end the film with some optimism and by having a prayer scene, myself meeting some Palestinian Muslim sheiks, and I invited Nir Barm to the meeting, and close to the end came time, Mincha, or in their prayer, whatever. So, um, so we, we, we prayed. We were, this was in Gush Etzion, so we were praying north towards Yushalayim, and they were praying more to the south to Mecca, but somehow the sum was greater than the whole of hearts. We were authentically Jewish Adasov. They were authentically Muslim, but together somehow that touched the heart even of somebody very far from any religion. That's a very beautiful idea. A nice, a nice image to take along with us. I'm going to probably ask what's going to be my most controversial question right now. And I'm just going to throw this out because I'm not saying something which I'm asserting. I'm saying something which many people have said. And that is, they'll argue that every religious group has its bad apples. Every religious group, every nationality has its terrorists. But numerically, we see in the world that the biggest terrorist groups of all tend to be Muslim, whether we're speaking about Al-Qaeda, ISIS, Hezbollah, Hamas, Islamic Jihad, and so on and so forth. This makes some people roll their eyes when others say that Islam is a religion of peace, that these are not really anything about Islam. This is a mistake in Islam. These are the exceptions, not the rule. And people would say, why do we not hear more vocal condemnations coming from all corners of the Muslim world when even if it's 5%, 10% of people support them, that seems to be, again, I'm not asserting this because I'm not an expert in this, but that seems to be a bigger percentage of people supporting terrorism than in other religious or national groups. How do you answer that? Okay. First of all, every religious tradition has a potential for both. Whether the Talmud that says on the verse, V'zot Torah sher and they darshan it, that the Torah could be sam ke'osamina a potion. If we are privileged, it's a potion of life. If we're not, it's a potion of death. Blake, the poet, um, said about Bible, we both read Bible day and night. You read black and I read white. Now, first of all, what I agree with what you said, in the name of religion, crimes, terror in the claim for religion, certainly Islam, much more than 
uh, Christianity, certainly Judaism, has terror and murder in the name of religion. But um, there's some factual points she made, which I disagree about. First of all, I know that how severely terror is criticized, is condemned. I hear it all the time. It's often people, they don't, they don't exactly listen to anybody or anything, and then they'll say, no one ever condemns anything. But okay, so you obviously are not in any channels of communications that you've heard, but I've been throughout the world. I have connections, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, and very major leaders, not, and many public, in, at the R20, all the time, leaders were taking responsibility for the extremism in their midst. I was at a major concert once in Amman, Jordan, representative of every country in the Middle East, talking about fighting violence in the name of religion. So it's the fact that people haven't heard it might be telling a little bit more about them than, but anyway, so yes, there's a lot of violence in the name of Islam. It is not true that it's not being fought against. Um, but realizing that different religions have had their hours. I have a, a friend, a Catholic priest from Bethlehem, that he points out that the great religion, religious wars of Christianity was about 1400 years after Christianity's inception. Great wars of the Middle Ages in Europe. He says, you know what? Islam is, is about that same time period from its inception. And we see that that, that horrible level of violence, which overwhelmingly is Muslims against Muslims, the exceptions when other people. So yes, there is a problem. As we said, religion is power, power corrupts. There's a potential in, for confluence, ego, all sorts of things, for whatever historical reasons that the dark side is being more emerging. But the real question is, so what are we gonna do about it? It's not, I'm not coming to say that the world is all, all rosy. Everything's good and just simply people don't realize that everything is good. No, there's evil in the world. There's terror in the world. There are problems in the world. But the big question is, what are we going to do about it? Do we give up even before we started? Or do we say, which in itself I feel is what Rabbi Jonathan Sachs would call pathological dualism. Pathological dualism breaks the world up into two, the good and the bad, the light and the darkness. And certainly the violence in the name of God, in Rabbi Sachs' books, Not in the Name of God, is motivated by this pathological dualism, but in a more less, fortunately, much less violent way, I feel many of us also have some a nonviolent expression of, of pathological um, dualism, meaning because of the truth that there is terror, there is evil, there are many problems that have to be solved, broken in, in the Islamic world and also in other parts, but maybe you could say there is more terror to, to take that to the point of saying, okay, so really, really ultimately there on some level either they're all the same or it's total loss so there's nothing nothing to heal over there because it's a part of the dna of what they are and who they are that's the, the pathological dualism which i think the the biggest losers in this are us okay I want to ask you about what would be broadly considered the two main branches of Islam. I realize that's overly reductionist, but we often talk about the Sunni Muslims and the Shiite or the Shia. 
Have you found any major differences between them in the way that they relate to Jewish people? Obviously, for us, very often we look at them, the Muslim world, and with a capital M, and we don't often look at the differences. But for them, these differences are very significant. In terms of the way they relate to us and or to Israel, do you see major differences? Right. Well, of course, the Shiite Sunni, as you said, is only a very small break-off in the different branches. One thing which is known that in some aspects in Iran, the specifically anti-Semitic dimension might be in some ways less than other places, but it's very complex. I, I happen to be very close to one of the Shiite leaders of Iraq. Again, for obvious reasons, I won't mention his name. And something I found important to realize that the Arab Shiites, one mistake people often don't realize, Iran is not an Arab nation. It's a different culture. It's a different language. And there's tremendous conflicts between Persian and Arab culture and nationalities. But one thing I found comforting is to know that many of the Shiites and Shiite leaders of Iraq, um, certainly in our struggle with Iran, are loyally loyally with the, the Arabs who they feel are together with Israel in this struggle, which is now taking place. So it's even part of the complexities that Iranian Shiites as opposed, which unfortunately in Lebanon, the Hezbollah is aligned with Iran, but Iraq, which is mostly Shiite, is not is not aligned with, with Iran to show that even with, within Shiites, it's very complex. Within Sunnis, they're, they're Salafis or, or extremists, yeah, but you have Sufi mystics who are often the victims. The, great, the, the worst terror attack in the Middle East ever was not against Jews, was against Sufis praying in, in, at, in a mosque in the Sinai desert. And thousands were murdered by Daesh, by ISIS, for being heretics. So it's, it's too much of an overgeneralization to deal with Shiites, but Sunnis, um, it's, it's the subcategories that there are differences, in fact. Tonight, I'll be together with my dear friend, um, Professor Mohammed Dijani. Um, he was very well known for, he was a professor at Al-Quds University. He took his stu- Palestinian students to Auschwitz to understand better the, the, the Jewish story. And he himself has been a great hero for um, reconciliation and realizing that the hope for the Palestinians is not boycotting Israel, creating more disconnection, more hatred, more fear, but trying to build bridges. So tonight I will actually be speaking together with him about the trip to Indonesia because as I was the one Israeli representative, he was the one Palestinian representative. But he has a school of Islamic thought, Wasatya. Wasatya means the middle path, which is based on the middle verse of Surah Al-Baqarah, the chapter, a chapter that deals a lot with the Jewish people, the second chapter of the Quran. And there, part of it is a methodology, how to deal those sayings, which are the exception in Islamic tradition that have been misused by extremists to do violence, how methodologically can we deal with those statements? Okay. Right. I give you one, one small example. It, it's Please so do. obvious. We often we hear from the Hamas quoting the Quran, Jews are monkeys. Okay. Now so there's a verse behind it. What that what does it say there? It says that the Jewish people were given the Ten Commandments at Har Sinai. And one of the Ten Commandments is the Shabbat. And God decided to test 
the Jews living in a certain city that was on the seashore, and to see will they truly keep the Shabbat, he sent many fish to the almost to the shore on Shabbat. And some of the Jews, it says some of the Jews couldn't resist the temptation, so they were they violated the Sabbath to fish. And other Jews says, this is forbidden in the Shabbat. But they, they didn't listen to that. They continued to violate the Shabbat. And then God says, because they didn't listen to what I am saying, they are monkeys, which is often looked as not, as, uh, not physiological, but a metaphorical. So in fact, if you look closely at that passage, it's saying that the Jewish people should keep the Shabbat that was given to them at Har Sinai. But you just take one phrase out of context and suddenly everybody knows the Quran says Jews are pigs. So, mm-hmm. um, so he has a whole he has a whole methodology, but it's not unique to him. I, I, I encountered this in many places. But yes, there's much evil, there's much terror, there are many adversaries. But the only way we're going to change reality is by doing something about it. And doing something is learning to respect one another and have a discussion that deals with these issues, not merely saying that my religion is for peace, love, and tolerance. But no, but my tradition has a way to really see you and truly respect you and see that you have a legitimate place in the world. So we've spoken a bit about some of the misperceptions and misconceptions that Muslims have about Jews. So now let's, I guess, enact that dialogue just a little bit to our largely Jewish audience. What are some of the misconceptions that Jews carry about Muslims that should be corrected? I think the extent of the extent given to the the evil terror aspects sometimes I think are are more expanded, but also I, f- I feel they aren't they are less stereotypes. The Muslim problem is there's an obsession, and obsession could lead to the negative and not to the positive. In the Jewish side, I think the issue much more is general indifference. I think our failing is not negative stereotypes. Um, I feel there's there's fear for good reasons because people are hearing the Hamas and the Hezbollah all the time, and we are part of a conflict that people are being killed in the name of Islam. So people's pain, anger is fully understandable. But I think the problem is indifference to who they are, what they are, and lack of realization that to overcome that indifference could be a potential path for growth and connection. Rabbi Nagain, we're almost out of time. I want to ask a final question to you. If somebody were to argue that the work you're doing is wonderful, but it's really a self-selecting group, the people who are engaging with you are the people who already have an openness towards a Jewish-Muslim encounter. There are so many millions, if not billions, who are not interested in such an encounter. When we look at the people you just mentioned, Hezbollah, Hamas, and so on and so forth, they're not interested in any sort of rapprochement. They're not interested in any sort of dialogue. So the people that we really need to reach, we're not necessarily reaching. I'm not saying that's true, but I can imagine people saying that to you, that the work you're doing is so important, but the people who really need to hear it aren't getting that message. How would you answer that? Okay, so I think that there's a small minority that are truly violent, Hezbollah, Hamas, etc. But I feel I deal now with the small minority on the other spectrum, which would be your sweet-faced people of no influence or impact. I feel that there's a large majority in the middle, and reaching out to that majority in the middle 
um, is a way to ultimately impact on the extreme. And simply the people I deal with is not finding somebody somewhere. For example, I, why was I invited to Indonesia? The world's largest Islamic group in the world, 100 million followers, Hajj Yahya Stokov. He came to Yushalayim, he was once in Yushalayim, and it was an interfaith um, Kulam. Kulam is this Israeli startup that they teach a thousand people to sing a song together, and they separate us by the voices. And for the end of Ramadan in the Tower of David Museum, so he came, he was so moved at when he had once seen a Kululam that he came, joined that Kululam, and I represent Judaism, so he had that connection. He returned the favor when in Indonesia, he took me and some others to one of the 25,000 schools that his organization run, and a thousand very sweet teenagers sang for us, John Lennon, imagine, after changing the words from imagine no religion to imagine no evil. But um, he, he is the leader of 100 million people. I was just in Rabat, Morocco. I mean, if I went through the different people in dialogue, it's a good chunk of the Islamic world. It's not some side people on the side. So I think, so it's, we're trying to get to the middle mainstream, but you can't go too far to go to people that are using religion as a way to manipulating it to kill you. It's, it's a journey, but we have to make the first step. So the first step is going to try and find broad mainstreams. And yes, hopefully this, this will impact ultimately on the extremes or at least lessen them. Or Rabbi Yaakov Nagain, that's a very hopeful message with which to end. And I really appreciate, first of all, the work that you're doing, which I think is so vital and so important for the future of the Jewish people, and if I dare say, all of humanity. And certainly I'm appreciative of your explaining what you do and how you do it and everything that you've been involved in on this podcast. So thank you for joining me today. Thank you for hosting me, Scott. All the best. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum Podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, The Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.